Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, founder of the heavily influential Converge and God City Studio, Kurt Ballou. Kurt, how are things? I'm doing all right. Yourself? I'm doing really good. Well, I want to start this off by asking about David Blaine's stunt yesterday. Did you watch it? And being a part of aerospace engineering in your education, what did you make of the whole thing? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Please fill me in. uh, I mean, I know who David Blaine is, but that's it. He essentially um, put a bunch of balloons and made this aircraft. He had to... I think he had to start off by being um, like a hot air balloon pilot. And then he had to get 500 jumps in and essentially build this aircraft that was going to be run strictly off. I want to say it's helium balloons. Okay. And I, I would, I feel like the engineering feat behind it was actually pretty impressive. So I was just wondering from somebody who is an engineer, how impressive actually was it? Um, Yo, I, I didn't see it, so I, I don't know. I mean, helium floats, right? And you, you want to use helium and not hydrogen, otherwise you end up with a Hindenburg situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, dirigibles are cool, so I bet it was a cool stunt, but I don't really know anything about it. So, <laughs> sorry. Well, I want to take you way back then when you were, like, studying, doing engineering. Why did you decide to go into the aerospace program instead of just going for that music program? Um well, the aerospace thing was, I actually never intended to work in, um, in aerospace, but it was the closest that my school had to um, something related to transportation. So I, I thought that maybe I'd get involved in some energy efficient mass transit type stuff like maglev trains or some, something to that effect. Uh, mostly it was that I went to school for electrical engineering and, I, and it didn't really work out. I had a, had a tough time um, my, first, my first semester there. Uh, for various reasons and ended up switching to um, a a different major and that's just that's what they had available for me at the time Um, I never worked in that field I did work as a biomedical engineer for a while um, which but but essentially doing mechanical engineering at the job that I had and aerospace engineering at least at an undergrad level really isn't much different than mechanical engineering so I, I did that I didn't at the time I didn't think that a career in music was possible or even something that I wanted. Um, you know, you got to remember back then the kind of scene that we were involved in and passionate about, there really wasn't, there weren't many people involved and there wasn't any money involved. And it was, you know, entirely a passion project and not, um, you know, not a potential career. So it wasn't really any thought given to that. Um, I did think that it would be cool to get involved in, um, like a musical equipment company or even like a hi-fi company. There's a few, um, at the time in, in, in Massachusetts, but I think Bose was the big one. There was also Cambridge Soundworks. Um, the companies like Motu and Isotope and, and, uh, Sonos, those came along much later. So I, I didn't, I wasn't, um, thinking about that stuff at the time, but I thought if I went to school for electrical engineering, that maybe I'd have an opportunity to work at a company like that, or even another like um, Boston Area Company, Analog Devices. Um, you know, they make a lot of uh, ICs and other um, electronic components that go into audio equipment. So that was kind of an option that I was thinking about. Um, I wasn't thinking about recording studios either. Um, and I did actually apply to some music schools, and um, there was a place called the Hart School of Music in Connecticut that I was interested in that had a uh, an electrical engineering slash music dual major. Um, but 
Converge was already together at that point in time, and I didn't really want to move away from my band. And um, you know, I guess at the time, like moving two hours away seemed like it would break up the band. Um, obviously, that's silly now that I'm in a band with a drummer who lives in California. But um, yeah, at the time, I just uh, I thought that um, I should stick around in Boston and uh, keep doing the band. And and BU is probably technically the best school that I got into. So BU, BU meaning Boston University. Um, so I just decided to do that. And... Well, that Hartford School of Music that you got accepted into, um, was that for a particular instrument or was that more in the engineering side of music? Um, no, it was for baritone saxophone. I'm not sure if they had any kind of engineering, like uh, like music engineering programs down there. What they, The program that I applied to um, was uh, an acoustics program, which was like a split major between... Um, I believe it was electrical engineering. It might have been mechanical engineering and music performance. So, yeah, I got, uh, I had actually gotten uh, punched in the face in a mosh pit the day before my audition. Um, so I had a big fat lip and had to go down there and audition for Jackie McLean um, on baritone sax with a fat lip playing out the side of my mouth. Um, Jack, Jackie McLean, he was like famously um, an understudy of Charlie Parker's, um, so he was awesome. And you know, I remember like taking out my my reel book to do the audition, and he asked me like, "Can you play Giant Steps?" And I and I start playing Giant Steps. He's like, "No, can you play Giant Steps?" And I was like, uh, "Okay," but you know, I, I had a good tone, and he was just looking for that. And really, I think like maybe the acceptance criteria for music school isn't super high, but but staying in music school is um, challenging. I think they, they kind of cast a, a wide net and then um, people kind of weed themselves out. At least that, that seems to be true with a lot of music schools. Um, so I, I got in there and I got, and I got into the, I got accepted to the engineering program as well, but it just didn't seem like, um, just didn't seem like the right move for me at the time. Although, you know, I have, I have wondered like, you know, what, th- how things would have been different if I had, if I had gone that route. It's the Hart School of Music, by the way. Uh, it just happens to be in Hartford, but I think Hart is, uh, named after a person. Oh, it's actually just called Hart? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's like eight, H, it's, I can't remember if it's H, I think it's a H-A-R-T-T. I actually don't remember, but it's, it happens to be in Hartford, but I don't believe the Hart things are related. I think the heart is named after a person. Well, what initially drew you to the saxophone and why did you land on the baritone instead of, I don't know, the alto? I mean, I started on alto, um, and then ended up, ended up on baritone. Yeah. I think like when, you know, when you're like, at least in my town, when they, they put you into the music program at, at a young age, I think I started at about 10 and, you know, I had a choice between like drums, trumpet or alto sax or maybe flute or clarinet. There was only a few choices. And then like, you know, you do th- that foundation for a couple of years and then either you stick with those or you move to something else or you, um, you know, or you stop pursuing it. And, um, for me, I was like the big kid and baritone seemed to make sense. Um, fit my, fit my body bigger, better. And there was, um, fewer people, um, playing that instrument. So like there was more opportunity to get like the first chair slot. And I had, I had fun doing that low, doing that low stuff. I thought that, um, uh, Jerry Mulligan's music was really cool. He's like a pretty well-known baritone sax player, and he he claims to have like been the one who wrote um, most of Kind of Blue, I think. Um, but you know, obviously, other people would disagree. But uh, yeah, I always just thought baritone sax was had a had a cool sound. It was loud. It was deep. Um, I was you know 
my saxophone heroes were generally like tenor players. And like, I want to say the first kind of band that I ever got into was like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. So Clarence Clemens and his saxophone solos, I always thought were really cool. And um, sax, sax seemed like a rock instrument to me more than like trumpet did. And guitar wasn't really an option. And my father played guitar, so I didn't want to play guitar, I think, initially. Um, I wanted to do something else. And that was sort of just what was available to me. And um, but, but, you know, by the time I was in high school, I started messing around with guitar and as well as like other wind instruments and stuff. And um, I don't know, man, they're all just tools um, to making songs. And I don't really, I don't really care that much about what I'm playing. I mean, I definitely like playing guitar, but like, it's more that I just like making music and whatever instrument happens to be around is a vehicle for making music. Well, there's always been such a jazz undertone to Converge's music. Would you say that was some of your biggest formative influences was the jazz cats? Yeah. I mean, I can't say that I spent a ton of time listening to jazz growing up, but I was always respectful of the medium and, um, you know, when it come to when it came to like playing music in school, that's what was available to me, and that was like the hippest music available to me in school. So I played, you know, I, I guess I learned how to play music, and I learned how to play in an ensemble, playing jazz more than any other genre. So when I started playing guitar and I started writing songs and started, you know, becoming like a band leader, I had some of that stuff was filtered through the experience of being raised on jazz. I mean, I don't, I don't think of Converge as like a metallic spirogyra or something like that, but it's, um, it would definitely, uh, I guess that's probably why we're maybe not as straightforward as other bands in our genre is just that kind of grew up with like the arrangement and harmonic structure of that more complicated music. Well, what kind of stuff was your was your parents listening to? Would you say that like that was also a heavy influence? What was getting played around the house, or did radio have a kind of a big impact? Yeah, much much more so radio. My my parents were not really music people. I mean, they like music, of course, but like, um, you know, my my father played music when he was younger, but that well, he didn't really he didn't play at all when I was growing up, and um, you know, they were. Yeah, they weren't really super music focused when I was a kid. They had like you know a handful of eight tracks. They had an they had one LP that a friend of theirs had made. Um, When the when the compact disc came out, they got a handful of compact discs, and I listened to those. I remember there being like Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever and like the Police's Greatest Hits, and uh, I think maybe like Air Supply's Greatest Hits. There there wasn't a lot, you know. Um, so where I got my music was from friends and friends' older siblings, and um, my town library had um, albums that could I could check out, and I would do that and tape those, and I would listen to the radio and tape the radio, and you know tape the radio hoping a song I wanted to hear would come on so that I could tape that song just kind of like listen to the radio with my hand with my finger on the uh on the record pause button waiting for the song that I wanted to hear to come on so I could tape it in some cases so I didn't even like have a way to hook up my cassette deck to the radio so I had like a a separate cassette deck with like the microphone pointed at the speaker of the radio and I record stuff that way um that's like initially how I like dubbed friends CDs too I'd bring like a dictaphone with me over to their house and like record their CDs o- over a speaker. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was ravenous for music, uh, for sure. And, uh, my discovery process of it was, 
you know, was I was it didn't didn't come from my family. I'm an only child too, so I didn't have any any like siblings to turn me on to stuff. Um, it was kind of just on my own. Well, was there a certain sound that you and Jacob were looking for when you started Converge, or did it kind of just happen accidentally, or or just by playing really? Uh, yeah, I mean, it just it happened accidentally. You know, I, mean, I think any musician is just sort of a product of their environment, what they're listening to. You know, they're influenced by the things that they want to sound like. They're influenced by the things they don't want to sound like, and it all becomes an amalgamation of whatever whatever is uh, swimming around their heads. Um, I think our initial drive was not to sound like anything in particular, but just to do something. You know, like when we're you know, I think I was like 17 when I started playing in the band and Jake was like about 14 at the time. And like, yeah, we didn't care. We were just like, we wanted, we didn't care if it was good. We just wanted it to be loud. We wanted it to be obnoxious. We wanted it to sound like our heroes. We wanted it to sound original. Like we didn't, we didn't care. It was the fact that we were just like, we were just driven to do it. And, um, you can get analytical about that after the fact, but I think like that's, that's one of the main differences I think between like young people and older people where like young people like, really like operate on instinct and then old, older people like tend to try to analyze that like analyze what they're doing and analyze what they did whereas like young people just go for it and you know we just went for it and we had that attitude like you know from like skating and bmx and stuff just this like you know fuck it go for it go big um don't care if you fuck yourself up kind of kind of attitude and that's that's how we approached music and the way that we ended up sounding as a as a result of that attitude and a result of you know myriad influences from you know metal and prog and hardcore punk and and everything in between being an engineer and having the engineering background what would you say is your proudest achievement of something that you've designed at your own studio like equipment wise yeah hmm. i don't know stuff to say stuff for me to play favorites i for me it's like the the fact that I get to keep doing it is what is really exciting. Um, you know, so probably my proudest thing is like whatever the latest thing is. And, um, so the latest thing for me now is, um, I just did a, a, a small release of GCI craftsman guitars, which has been something, um, I've been dabbling with for about 10 years now. Um, and I finally have a, reliable factory involved to produce my designs for me and um people seem to really like it i'm really super proud of it and um it's an awesome guitar so that's what i'm most proud of right now okay well why did you decide to go for the guitar when you did start playing in the band um well my friend rob and i wanted to start a band together and um we made a pact that whoever could save up money for a bass first got to play bass and the other person had to play guitar and I lost, so I ended up playing guitar. How did your dad feel about that? Because w- were you your entire life kind of being like, I don't want to play guitar because you play guitar? Or did he really know that you were trying to stay away from that? No, there, no. I may, I may have overstated that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have any extreme feelings about, about that. I just, I just wanted to play bass. I was, I was attracted to like rhythm and low-frequency stuff, and maybe that's why I gravitated towards baritone sax and and um bass clarinet and other other low big instruments you know i think i also had that um that typical naive sense that bass has four strings therefore it's easier 
and you can you can get up to proficiency faster. I remember even taking his one of his acoustic guitars and like stripping two strings off of it and spacing out the strings to make it play more like a bass, so I could start practicing for when I did eventually get a bass. Um, but um, no, I, mean, I was I, I didn't I, I was fine with playing guitar. He was like. You know, my parents were generally supportive of, of what I did musically, although, you know, they were really concerned about um, how music might be distracting from my schoolwork. Um, and uh, it took a while for me to demonstrate that, like, to them that that was, that was my path in life. And, it, you know, they're extremely supportive of it now. Well, stuff coming out of God City Studio has such a distinctive tone. You know that you've you've touched it in one way or the other. Was this intentional to have this run throughout a lot of your stuff, or does it kind of just happen that way? I, I think it just happens. You know, um, I I, tr- I try not to have um, when I'm working on somebody else's record. I try not to impart a particular color on it. Obviously, like. You know, everything's running through my my brain and my ears and, um, you know, the way the monitors sound in my control room and the the gear that I happen to own and all that stuff. You know, it ends up there ends up being some commonalities between them. But, you know, you compare like nails to Chelsea Wolf to Russian Circles to Pygmy Lush. um, Those things don't sound the same. Um, But, you know, you compare, um, you know, Black Breath to Trap Them those are in the same kind of wheelhouse. So those records kind of sound the same a little bit. Um, you know, they're different people and they play differently and, you know, they write different kinds of songs, but they're, they have some tonal commonalities. And when you put that in the same kind of room with the, with the same engineer and the same equipment, it's going to, there's going to be some common threads for sure. How much would you say that digital has helped you as an engineer and a producer? Um, it's, uh, well, it's you know it's got it's got a something downs for sure. Um, I'm not really interested in mixing another record um, from tape. I'm certainly not really interested in recording vocals to tape anymore. Um, definitely changes the the workflow both in terms of a tracking and a mixing standpoint. Um, you know, I enjoy the automation possibilities. Um, from from digital and uh but you know it also bands are very accustomed to working digitally now and you know even oftentimes when given the opportunity to work on tape and to like um you know mix mix an analog style on a console like they would prefer the digital workflow just because of the possibilities that it does it has the the ability to delay making decisions the the ability to um you know, to automate everything, the ability to have 10 bazillion tracks. Um, the record that I'm working on right now is like a fairly straightforward metallic hardcore record. Um, but it has over 200 tracks because there's like, there's probably like 10 or 10 or 15 guitar performances on it. But each of those guitar performances is made up of a DI, three close mics and a stereo room mic so that's six six tracks per guitar performance so if you've got like 15 guitar performances 
that's already 90 tracks right there. Obviously, like you can't do that on a two inch 24 track or even like slaving two two inch machines together. You have to make some decisions on the way in. Um, you know, in the, the era of COVID where I'm doing most of my work remotely mixing people that have recorded elsewhere, I do actually, I don't, I don't love having to like make all those decisions for other people, but I do love the fact that, um, not everything is committed on the way in because, um, it gives me a little bit more control over things and can probably, I can hopefully get things sounding better than, um, if, if those decisions were made in the moment. However, um, just like in life, any, any decision you make making a record affects all the decisions that come after it. So like your guitar sound or your drum sound affects your bass and guitar sound, your guitar sound affects the vocal sound, your guitar, the guitar overdubs you choose to do affect the vocals you do. And are your guitar overdubs in mono? And if so, like, do you want the vocal track that's happening then to be in stereo? Are your guitar overdubs in stereo? Do you want the vocal that's happening then to be in mono? Um, to like not compete in the same panning space. Like there's, there's so many, like there's so much minutia that goes into making a record. And if you save all the decisions for later, then, um, how can you really decide anything along the way? And so I think that's one of my big struggles with digital right now. You were mentioning vocals, uh, on tape. What would you say that the biggest limitation to having vocals on tape is? Uh, it's just edit editing and punching in, you know, like, um, starting with the first time I heard it was when I was recording American Nightmares first couple of EPs, um, which I think was, you know, around 2001 or so, um, maybe 2002, I, I think it was 2000, it might be mid 2000. I don't know. Anyway, Wes would do his vocals on two tracks and he would alternate lines, uh, because he had like a very dense, approach to singing and that kind of became par for the course in hardcore it never like if you if you go back and listen to like um discharge or something like that there's like five seconds of breathing room between every line and then each each verse happens like like the second verse will go five repetitions instead of four because after the first chorus the singer needs a repetition to catch their breath like you listen to like most most black flag songs are, or a lot of black flag songs are like that. Whereas like hardcore bands now it's just maximum vocal density at all times. Never any breathing room, kind of a lot like pop music is now too. So like Wes would, he started doing this like dual track vocal approach so that he could have maximum vocal density in his, um, you know, in his songs. And then, you know, so other singers kind of picked up on that. And then it, the genre morphed to a style in which it wasn't really possible for very many hardcore singers to sing straight through a song. Now um, it has to be done either with a lot of punch-ins or by splitting up the tracks. Um, I'm not a big fan of like when, when like vocals overlap every line, um, but that happens a lot too. So with digital now, like you can kind of like move stuff around a little bit if, it, if their timing is off and um, you know, you can create a bunch of tracks to do the vocals and comp together one continuous vocal performance that, you know, sounds hopefully sounds like it was um, tr tracked straight through by a single singer. Um, but yeah, and it's tough. It's tough to do that stuff on tape because you end up with like, you just, it's, 
the 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 two the two track approach to doing vocals it's difficult to stay in time whereas uh so if i'm if i'm kind of punching in every line it's like i feel like people get more better rhythm when they start when they do stuff more continuously so if people are punching in just like little segments they tend to have worse worse rhythm so the the fact that i can go into um you know, in, in Pro Tools and, like, edit people's rhythm and also, like, edit breaths. Like, if someone has a line that ends and then they have another line that comes right in immediately after it, there might be a breath that is natural when you isolate just that one line, but then when you stack it all up, you have to manipulate the, either the length of that breath or remove that breath in order to make the it still sound like um, a continuous performance. And doing that kind of stuff in analog is, is really difficult. Converge released Endless Arrow this year, a 30-minute song. You really don't hear that much from hardcore bands. What brought upon this release? Oh, I just someone told me about this algorithm called Paul Stretch, and I was just messing around with that and ran one of our songs through it and then put some reverb on it. That's literally the extent of it. <laughs> and then Jake wanted to like put it on Bandcamp. It, there's nothing, nothing calculated about it at all. Um, yeah, there's just like this cool thing... Um, this is one algorithm that's called Paul Stretch, and I, I want to. Is it even available for Mac? I don't know. It might be like it's like a it's like an archaic algorithm uh, that's used for extreme time stretching. And um, anytime you hear one of those like extended ambient pieces, um, it's done. It's probably done with Paul Stretch. And I was just kind of like playing around, learning a new tool, and um, and Jake wanted to put it on our Bandcamp page, so so that's what happened. Well, how often are you looking for new bands, or do you, or do they normally just come to you with music, and that's how you're discovering your new stuff? Um, yeah, like I, I've I don't really advertise or, or approach other bands um, about recording. So you know, when when a band comes to record with me, it's because they've approached me more more than likely. Um, I've always felt weird about um, trying to sell myself to to bands. Like I don't want. Like, I, I don't want to, like, leverage my friendship in order to, like, try to get somebody to record with me. And I always felt like it was just, I don't know. I don't like sales. I just felt like it. If, I always feel sleazy trying to, be a, trying to be a salesperson. So, yeah, the bands that I record are just, you know, bands that have sought me out. Um, and, uh, you know, if I, if I like him and I have time, then I work with him. Well, not even so much recording, just stuff that you're listening to on your off time. Are you discovering your own stuff? Or oh, yeah, I don't listen to music. You don't listen to anything new, really? No, no not really. I, I, I mean, I, I'm in my studio, like, concentrating on music intently for 12 hours every day. So there's not really a lot of um, space left in my... Um, I don't have a lot of brain power left for, for music after, after the workday. So, you know, when I'm driving to work and or driving home it's like usually listen to podcasts or something or sometimes even nothing i just need to like some time to some quiet time to decompress and um you know maybe think about the music that i was working on that day it's difficult for me to listen to anything without being analytical about it because that's my relationship with music for the past 20 years or so has been one that's very analytical and it's really unfortunate that it's sort of taken some of the fandom out of it because I feel as though like fandom is a very important um, uh, part of being a music producer. Um, like, but, and, and maybe if I was in, 
a financial state where I could do a lot fewer records every year, then I'd have more more time and more brain power for for listening to other things. But um, I just like working constantly right now, so I'm not really able to um, absorb other music that way. The only the only thing I can think of recently that I listened to. Um, was I was driving in my car recently and listening to the radio and Journey's um, uh, what's the biggest Journey song? Um, Don't Stop Believing. That came on the radio, and um, I don't know why, but I just sort of imagined the inevitable uh, a, the inevitable event where someone says to me, "But dude, have you heard Journey's early stuff?" And, uh, cause that kind of stuff always happens to me and I'm sure it always happens to everybody. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to nip this one in the bud. I'm going to familiarize myself with journeys, early stuff, just in case this ever comes up in conversation. And you know what? The first journey record is fucking cool. It's got some riffs with some stank on it. And I did know that like, um, you know, Neil Sean from journey, he came from playing with Carlos Santana. Um, he was like a, very young band member in Santana's band. I, I forget the keyboard player's name, but uh, he was also in Santana's band. And then I knew that there was another band involved in that sort of formation of Journey, which is called, I think it, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Frumious Bandersnatch. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get into Frumious Bandersnatch too. And that is just drug music for drug people and, um, or 60s, 60s drug music for 60s drug people. Um, that one, that stuff didn't grab me as much, but yeah, that, that f- <laughs> first song of the first journey album, journey of a journey of a lifetime has some riffs. It's awesome. I want to do like a death metal cover of, uh, of this song. It's great. Well, you, you have like a very, you're very big into the process of recording converge. How much are you involved in the music videos? Or do you guys really just try to find a director and let them do their own vision for the songs? Yeah, that's the, the latter. So, um, you know, video production, while while the pricing of, of video production has come down drastically since we started making videos, um, it's still really expensive and it still is always done. Like the stuff that we do, it seems to always be like a favor or a shoestring budget or something which which doesn't give us actually very much opportunity to get involved in it. Um, so we, we try to we try to curate the video mostly based on who we choose to work with and, um, their, the initial treatment of the video. And then, um, beyond that, it's, um, we unfortunately don't have a ton of, a ton of control just, just for budgetary reasons. Well, speaking of control, what album of Converges would you say that all of the band had the most control of, or even just you, or which one sounded the best in your opinion and really captured Converge? At its peak. Well, you know, I, I liked like much like the earlier question about the equipment that I make. Um, I like to always think that our latest is our best, and that we haven't peaked yet. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with that. Um, I'd say a personal favorite of mine has was probably um, "Axe to Fall," due to all the collaborations we did on that. I really enjoyed having an opportunity to work with. Um, friends of ours and take in some outside influence and I think that that created um, an album that was much broader than any other Converge album um, 
had been to, uh, up to that point. And, you know, it also, for that same reason, is, is why we took the opposite approach on All We Love, We Leave Behind and, um, and The Dusk and Us. We wanted to keep that focused as being just just the band members without outside influence. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm equally proud of those things, but um, I think Axe to Fall was a real like milestone record in the catalog as far as I'm concerned. And um, one of when definitely one of my favorite sounding converged records. Well, when you uh, took your severance package and opened up God City, did you have a whole bunch of bands lined up that you were ready to record? Or were you kind of just hoping something was going to fall into place? So God City was going for about six years before I got laid off from my job. Um, so there was um, there was already established clientele. And um, and then when I when I got laid off, um, I had I had work, uh, but I had uh, I was working out of a studio where I had limited access to the studio. So there were some because of the noise, there were some sort of restrictions on when I could work. And I, I was starting to get clients come from, you know, from all over the country and even from Europe and, you know, asking them, you know, asking a band to like come from Europe, but then like to tell them like, well, we can't start working until like 6 PM and my studio doesn't have a bathroom. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff just felt kind of, it felt like I had outgrown the space and it was time for me to, um, to get a more permanent space where, so we're, I'm at, the space I'm in now is my fourth studio and um, bought this building at the end of 2002 and built it out. And, you know, I had, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do music full time, but I knew that I c it could at least be self-sustaining uh, for a while. So when I built this space, um, I did have sessions lined up and I had, I think I, I think I bought it December 31st or December 30th, 2002. And I was like, yeah, I'll be, do I'll be doing sessions by March. So March comes along. Nope. May, April, May, June, July, you know, it's, I think it was like October before I actually had the place open to do sessions. So I had all these bands lined up that I had to keep like pushing off. And in some cases they had to go record elsewhere and other cases they just sort of were waiting in the wings to, um, until I, until I got opened up, I did try to like not book it too densely because I knew that there was going to be a period of adjustment and, um, you know, I'd love to go back and remix those first <laughs> few records that I did here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I had, I had stuff, I had stuff waiting in the wings and, you know, I've been pretty steadily busy since I, since I opened, there haven't been too many lulls. With the advent of digital, you have a lot of people recording at home, doing their own music, or even doing a podcast like this. And I know you've you've even given me some some heads up on some things that I could tweak myself, which I really appreciate. What would you say is everybody's biggest downfall when they're recording at home, and what are some of like the biggest mistakes that really could just be fixed super early? Hmm. Well, that's a that's a big question. So starting with this with this. Uh pandemic and, and quarantine this I've been fielding these questions a lot and um, it's usually a basic question of how, hey Kurt how do I record myself and um, you know there's like a, it is the kind of thing where you gotta you gotta kind of put in your 10,000 hours but there are some things you can do to get to get started and to do it well and then um, but also there's also a time to delegate to other people that maybe have some more experience or some equipment or something that 
will enable them to to um, take whatever you're working on to the next level. Um, the uh, you know there's also another thing. Just I feel like I should mention there's there's so many touring people, both both musicians and uh, crew, that are out of work right now, and a lot of those people have a lot of skills and those skills can be leveraged in a time like this. So like I know a bunch of live sound engineers are mixing podcasts right now, for example. So, um, for people who have a podcast and love doing their podcast and are, you know, have the personality for doing the podcast for getting, for getting guests, but don't necessarily have, um, the, the, technical knowledge for for mixing it like there's a lot of live sound engineers right now out there who would love to have the work and could do a phenomenal job mixing podcasts like i've noticed even some of my favorite podcasts like the quality has gone down since the pandemic and i I feel like the quality actually should have gone up like you know part of it is that so much more of the interviews are being done remotely and you know over the phone but there's um you know, there's there's a lot of like audio restoration tools. Isotope makes a lot of great products. Like the um, the Rode Podcaster Mixer has a bunch of built-in stuff. Or you know, for like you can plug mics into it, you can plug a phone into it, and you can record everything all in one space. And you know, like phones tend to have uh, some kind of honky resonance to them, and I I hear that all the time, even on like big budget podcasts. Like, yo, just get a notch filter, get that honk out of there. It's like an easy thing to do. Um, but I'm sort of totally avoiding your or dodging your initial question, which is what can you do to get started in audio cheaply, I think. And so the, the, I guess my, my answer is like, you know, again, it's complicated, but my answer really is to, it's mostly just have some pride in your work. And if things, if you can do something small to make things better, um, and it means taking some time to learn how to do that, then you should. Like if if your music doesn't sound, if the music that you're recording doesn't sound great, you know, take take a minute to figure out why. You know, like do you have a bad microphone? Do you have a bad cable? Is your is the space that you're recording in bad? Um, you know, the acoustic space is actually like way more important than any of the equipment, especially like if you're trying to mix a recording, like if your mix room doesn't sound good, doesn't matter how good your speakers are, doesn't matter how good your microphones are. If the room itself isn't treated properly, you just, you won't be able to hear what you're doing. Um, like I, I've mixed some records at home and it's, it's tough cause I can't hear what's going on like I can in my studio. And, um, so I can't make good decisions if I can't hear what's going on. So that's like really the first thing is both the space that you're recording in and the space that you're mixing in. Like if those spaces don't sound good, you're not going to be able to get a good result no matter how good your microphone is. Um, and uh, But acoustics are complicated and people don't want – people want to buy themselves out of a plateau more than they want to put the effort into learning how to fix it or the effort into whatever they need to construct – um, in, in terms of acoustical treatments in order to fix that. It's much easier to say like, well, my rec- recordings don't sound good. If I get a fancy mic preamp or a fancy mic, my recordings are going to start sounding good. Um, and, you know, it, it may it may help, but one thing that I've learned over the course of recording music for like like 25 years now is that like it's really hard to buy yourself out of a plateau. Like when, you, when, you've, when you've plateaued 
like your recordings or your skills have plateaued, like you just got to, you got to practice or you got to, or you got to figure out how to make better decisions and not necessarily, um, I mean, gear helps of course, but, um, but just buying new gear isn't, isn't going to, isn't really going to help you level up. It's going to, it's improving your skills that are going to help you level up. And, you know, and it's that, and, and it's attention to detail. Well, do you think that we're going to start seeing a lot more albums come out from bands now that they have more time and the future of the music industry is kind of uncertain? Or do you kind of just see everybody waiting this out and as soon as you can tour again, they're just going to go back to the status quo? I think there'll be a lasting effect here. And I think a lot of people's skills are leveling up in a lot of ways, both you know in terms of recording. You know, Tons of people are getting a lot better at cooking right now. Um, you know, people, people are changing in a lot of ways because they're having to become more self-sufficient. And I think, I think that'll be felt for a long time. I think there's also like, um, a general cultural migration away from densely populated areas. You know, I know where, where I live and have lived for the past six years is like not very populated, but there's a lot of people from the city that are trying to move up there and like real estate is super super competitive because you know people just don't want to be around densely populated areas right now um and i think that there prior to um covid19 there was a there seemed to be a movement back towards densely populated areas and back towards resource sharing and you know thinking about like you know public spaces having having you know utilizing public spaces more than having like your own private spaces and you know, ride shares, all that kind of stuff. And and the tide seems to be going the other direction right now as a result of this. And I don't know if it's going to change back to that. And so I don't know if, you know, if people start living in less populated areas, are, are they going to be less likely to go to clubs? I don't know. You know, there's going to be less clubs, right? So it's going to be when, when people start touring again, you know, I don't know what the, what the statistics are and how many venues will have closed versus been able to stay open but a lot have closed. So there's going to be fewer options when it comes to touring. So there will be like a feeding frenzy of bands trying to get back on the road, but at the same time, their accessibility to venues is going to be impaired. Um, I think it's going to be a real buyer's market for venues. And I think, you know, bands might even, you know, might even have to take pay cuts as a result of that. You know, if there's a bunch of, if a, if a venue has offers of a bunch of different tours coming through, um, they might leverage those against each other. I don't know. Um, so it's tough. It's tough to say. Um, the in terms of like content creation, with with people becoming more self sufficient um, to record at home, I think the and this has been happening for a while anyway. But I think that there might be a, a movement towards more frequent, smaller releases. You know, rather than bands like waiting a few years to put out a 45 minute long album i think there's going to probably be more singles and eps that come out more frequently um and there seem to be a lot more like fun collaborative projects happening um like little splinter splinter cells are, are forming and um you know people are doing cover songs and stuff like that and i think people will start doing originals um in a more kind of niche niche category or more like niche niche way of working um i don't know i think i think everyone's just kind of figuring it out right now but i think that 
I think that the diversity of the way in which music is being released is going to um, is going to broaden as a result of this. Um, I also think that like for people like me who have you know some skill and the the facility for mixing music, this is also a, a time when we are um, we're really um, being being utilized a lot because there's a lot of people that are able to record themselves at home but don't feel as though they can get the results they want with out of a home recording. So you know they'll hire somebody like me. I know I've been doing a lot of work with that. And you know, granted, the quality of the tracks that I'm working with are generally not as high as they were this time last year. But um, if the music's great, I'm still happy to work on it. I've been doing a lot of um, mixing of older like you know, archival live material um, as bands have been putting out uh, fundraising releases to benefit various various organizations working for social justice causes. So I've been doing a bunch of like pro bono mixing work for that kind of stuff. Um, so this like there's still going to be I think there's still plenty of content coming out both archival and um, and new material as studios are getting back into things. Um, but it's definitely, definitely changing. You know, I mean, I've, I've only done a few days of tracking since February. Um, and it was, you know, real low key. I haven't even recorded a drummer or a singer, but just recorded a guitar player. Um, and, uh, it's definitely, it's, it's different. It's weird. It sucks working in a mask with glasses on. I can, I can say that. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of happy to just be working by myself, mixing things. Well, speaking of the future, what can we expect from you coming up? Um, well, uh, I mean, I guess T TBD, right? So, um, you know, Converge, we have, we were working on, we're working on some stuff, but our drummer lives in California and, um, he can't come out to Massachusetts right now. So we're, we're sort of, we're at a, at a, in a holding pattern right now. And, um, you know, I can, I can program drums to write songs, but I don't really like to work that way. You know, I like, um, there was a time in early Converge where, um, I kind of, I wrote, I wrote songs in a vacuum all, you know, all by myself and would demo things with a drum machine and record. And that's initially kind of why I started recording is got a little eight track and started recording converged demos on my own and, and would show everybody their parts. But as the, as I lightened up over the years and as like the lineup changed into, into people that were sort of more on the same page as me with songwriting, um, you know, we got a lot more collaborative and I've come to like really enjoy that. And I, I'm at the point now where when I'm writing songs, like I don't want to write more than maybe two or three ideas that could potentially go together before showing them to the other people. Cause I know that they're going to, they're going to take my ideas and make them better than they are to begin with. But the more, the more I work on those ideas on my own, the more attached I get to them, the less likely I will be to hear their ideas for what they are and rather than hearing them as a as like a distraction from whatever idea that I've developed so um I don't like the idea of writing and recording material remotely with Converge because I feel like we're much stronger of a band when we're when we're in a room together bouncing ideas off each other and you know you can do that you can bounce ideas off people through the internet but like there's a delay in that and the, and the immediacy of like trying out four different ways of doing things 
in a song, you could do that in four minutes. You know, you could just play that part four different ways. Like, let's try out Kurt's idea, let's try out Jake's idea, let's try out Nate's idea, let's try out Ben's idea, and then you can just do them all in a row, and you'll you'll almost always know immediately which is the best idea. But if you have to go and like program drums and then you know retrack guitars and scratch bass and scratch vocals for each of those ideas and then upload them to everybody in the band and and then try to build consensus through an email chain like it's just not a pleasurable or efficient or creatively fulfilling way to work so so i would rather just kind of put things on hold until we're able to get together and do some sort of collaboration well kurt Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It means a lot to me, and I hope everybody learned a little bit more about recording and everybody goes and picks up everything of yours and continues to look for anything with your name attached because it's always top-notch work. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Make sure to keep up with all things Kurt Ballou over at GodCityStudio.com. And if you've never heard Converge, you should probably go do yourself a favor, buy the whole damn discography, and just go nuts this weekend. This concludes our broadcast day. Yeah.